Okay, so we're, we've got a lot to cover today. Again, like, like most of our series here, it's been uh, kind of drinking from a fire hose in some way. There's just a lot of things to cover, uh, but we're going to do our best to just, yeah, hit the, hit the things that are here. Um, and what I think we're seeing is we, we get from chapter four last week, which was really focused on the, the initial uh, resistance or irritation or annoyances of the leaders of Israel at that time in, uh, in first century uh, Israel with Peter and John healing and preaching and them bringing, being brought in to be questioned and the, the, the way in which they respond to that and prayed through that as a church as where we were. But now we're going to almost shift gears like pretty hard in the other direction where we're going to go back to some really great things that were happening. So it's kind of like Luke is taking us through great things, hard things, great things, just sort of like going back and forth um, on, on how he's presenting the material to us. And what we're seeing today is kind of a mixed bag. There's both good and bad in it. Uh, there's positive and there's negative. Um, but what we're going to see first on the front end is that, that the local church, the, the body of believers in a particular place, in this, place, in this case it's Jerusalem, because the church hasn't really spread out beyond Jerusalem quite yet. Um, this local church is at its best, and every local church is at its best, when the believers that are committed to it and gathering there are, are working together to build a gospel culture. And that's a phrase we use around here a lot is, Gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture, meaning that what, we, what Jesus has accomplished for us should actually impact how we live and what we do and how we care for one another. So for example, when you say, Jesus forgives me, well, then that leads to forgiving one another, right? And that's what the Bible teaches us. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you in Ephesians 4 and many other passages we could look at there. But what we're seeing here in this particular passage is a picture of the church at its best in the first half, and then a picture of some individuals within the church at their worst. And so we're seeing kind of both sides, the, the positive and the negative side of gospel culture going well and gospel culture going off the rails. So it's, it's going to be an interesting uh, passage today. Um, so let's just look at the first half of our, our text, which is from verse 32 through 37, the end of chapter four here. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." So, so in this section, we are seeing a, a really positive example of gospel culture at work. 
And in this particular case, and what we're seeing here is that, that generosity is overflowing in the church, that people are taking what they have, what they own, that belongs to them, and saying, this isn't really mine because I'm going to use it for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so you're seeing examples of people selling what they have in order to have money to provide for the needs of the church. We're seeing some level of organization happening here because all the proceeds are being given to the apostles, put at their feet, and then then it's distributed out, right? So you've got a church of roughly somewhere between 5,000 and probably 10 or 15,000. They're counting uh, 5,000 men at the end of the last, uh, in the verse just before we, where we landed here, um, that, that there was a ton of people in this church, thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem. So yeah, it's, it's getting like, there needs to be some organization. There needs to be something happening. And so you're seeing kind of a natural flow here where the apostles are distributing the money as there's need, but that the church is coming around to be generous. And that's one of many ways in which gospel culture works in the church, that people see what they have and they go, this is ultimately from God to me, whether it be through my work or whether it be through what other, other, any other means that we may attain things. And ultimately, though, we go back to God is giving us this. God's giving me the ability to work. God's, God's ultimately the one who's provided me with this job, whatever it is. It's ultimately from God to us, and then we can have open hands to say, this is really his, and we can do with it what needs to be done. That's what you're seeing in this passage. This is that, that this, all these people took their belongings, they didn't see them as their own, and they, had, they shared it. They, they shared what they had. Then we're given a specific example of all the people who are doing this, Luke gives us an ex, an ex, uh, a specific example of one guy who's doing it, uh, and it's in verse 20, uh, 36. This guy named Joseph, who is also called, we're told, by the apostles. He's got this nickname that the apostles gave him. He's also called Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. So the, the apostles saw this guy, Joseph, and were like, you know what? Joseph doesn't do justice to who you are. We're going to call you Barnabas because you are such an encouraging person. That is your spiritual gift. That's your primary thing. We're going to just call you Barnabas. So they gave him this nickname. And Barnabas will eventually play a pretty big role in the book of Acts. He becomes a partner in, with the Apostle Paul for a time. Uh, Barnabas does go on to do some really good things uh, as well from here. But in this example, we're seeing Barnabas, who has we're told as a Levite. So he was from the tribe of Levi. He was from Cyprus. So we're given a little bit of biography about him, but not much. But what we're told in verse 37 is that he sells a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's a positive example of a guy who's being generous, who's a son of encouragement, who wants to support people in the church. He sees something that he has that he really doesn't need for himself, his field, um, and he decides to sell it and give the money away. Okay, so that's pretty basic, right? That's just pretty simple. The, the, the point of this passage is to show us that people are being generous with what they have. It, it's, not, uh, it's not a particularly complicated thing. This is really just giving us a window into what was happening in the local church at that time in Jerusalem. 
Um, but I think for us, we, we should think about this because it's modeling something for us. And it's modeling uh, a lifestyle of generosity in our lives that as they did these things, nothing really has changed that dramatically from when they live to when we live. The church still needs to be generous. People still need to support one another. People need to provide for those who are struggling. The church has uh, operating needs. These are all true things that all of us know under and understand intuitively. But this passage in front of us does not give us the specific things to think about as we consider generosity in our lives. Thankfully, though, the Bible is not just one book, right? It's not just the book of Acts that teaches us things. We have a whole scripture to teach us things. And I want to spend a little bit of time before we get into the next section of Acts, just unpacking what generosity means and how how we should think through our own calling as Christians to be generous and what that, what that means and how those principles should apply. So to do that, we've got to take a little excursion out of Acts for a few minutes. I'm, try, I'm going to try not to spend a ton of time outside of this, but we've got to do some, some other things to talk through this, uh, to kind of flesh out a bit what's going on in Acts. And I think the, one of the best passages to go to, though not the only one by any means, one of the best passages we can go to is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This is a passage, these two chapters, Paul talks about generosity, probably more, has more content than any other part of the Bible, although lots of other parts of the Bible touch on it. Um, And we're not going to look at these whole chapters, of course, we don't have time. What we're going to do is a quick kind of fly through of, of his main points of these two chapters. And so if you turn, if you want to turn, you can. If you just want to listen in, you can do that too. Um, but 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and I'm just going to talk, talk through four things that I think are, we're just going through the text as, it, as they appear. We're not putting them in order of importance or any of that. I'm just going to take them as Paul addresses them in this section. And we'll look at a few different examples, about four different things that he teaches about generosity. So look at verse 1 through 5 of chapter 8. It says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So so to put some context on this, um, Paul's raising money for the church in Jerusalem. This is a church at that time that was really struggling. And so he's going through all the churches that that he has connections with, the Corinthians being one, and asking for them to contribute uh, and send money down with, I think he's sending them with Titus. He's going to have Titus show up to, to Corinth and then bring the gift to Jerusalem. And he's trying to get these guys to give. And Corinth is an extremely rich church, and they have lots of money that they could give because they were really comfortable, had a lot. Corinth was a very wealthy city, which came with a lot of problems in itself. But, but here you have... 
Paul utilizing a, another church as an example for the Corinthians. And the church he highlights is Macedonia. The, church in, the churches of Macedonia, he says, were under a severe test of affliction, but they wanted deeply to give. And they begged Paul for the, for the privilege of giving to this, though they had very little money to give away. Paul says that they were in extreme poverty. Now, why they were in poverty, we don't really know. They could have been, it could be that Macedonia was just a region of the world that wasn't wealthy at that time. It could have been that there was some persecution happening in Macedonia that caused the Christians to not have consistent jobs. They were losing their jobs for their faith. Uh, A lot of theories, but we know that there is uh, a deep problem here financially for Macedonia, and yet they are begging Paul to give. Contrast that to the Corinthians who have all the money in the world seemingly compared to the Macedonians and they're holding back. So, so here's the principle though. Paul is saying to us that generosity, a spirit of generosity, a heart of generosity is not about a specific dollar amount. It's not about how much we can give, but it's about a desire to be a part of what God is doing a desire of the heart to say, God is calling us to help. And every person in this room, every person in this world has a different capacity and that's okay. It's not an issue of, can you give as much as the next guy? It's an issue of, are you willing to be a part of what God is doing, even if that seems to be a smaller amount? And that's okay because God takes what we give and he uses it however he wants to use it. So whether we have the capacity to give much or give little, the principle is that we should have a heart to give. Okay, so that's principle one. Number two, look at verses eight and nine of chapter eight still. It says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The second principle here that we're going to see is this, that generosity flows out of what God has given us through Jesus. That being recipients of God's grace makes us become givers. That's what Paul's saying here, right? He says that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus. And what is the grace of the Lord Jesus? That though he was rich, meaning he was God, he became poor, meaning he became a man, a human being, and lived among us. So that by his poverty, by his, his willingness to take on humanity and leave heaven for earth, to live as one of us, so through that we might become rich. And now when he says that we might become rich, he's not talking about the physical wealth that we may want. He's talking about the spiritual riches in the gospel. He's talking about the inheritance that we have through Christ, being united to him and and being given uh, all these things through Jesus. So Paul's using the gospel message itself as a way to encourage and inspire the church in Corinth to be generous And the same works for us. That generosity, this willingness to say, what I have can be given away. I don't need to hoard it. I don't need to hold on to it. I don't need to grasp it because Jesus didn't grasp his glory, his riches. He laid them aside for our sake. 
And so we can lay aside what we have for the sake of others. Okay? That's principle two. Generosity flows from Jesus. Number three, look at verse uh, seven. Uh, let's see, uh, chapter nine now, seven and eight. Okay. He says, each, each one, each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So, so here's the third principle. Generosity is determined at the individual level. It is, it is to be decided in our hearts as individual Christians or as individual families to decide what good the Lord is leading us to give. And Paul here talks about two different ditches that we need to avoid on this. One is reluctancy. He says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly, right? So you, we, we shouldn't be holding back or resisting giving. We shouldn't be reluctant in giving. Why? Because it's not about a dollar amount. It's about being a part of his work. It's, it's about what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for him, right? So all that should lead us then to a lack of reluctancy, a willingness to give. But the other ditch that has to be avoided is not under compulsion, meaning that no one outside of us is twisting our arms or trying to force us to give or, or make us give. That doesn't produce cheerful giving, right? God loves us to be cheerful givers. And if we're reluctant, we're not cheerful because we're giving begrudgingly. Or if we're under compulsion, we're not cheerful because again, we're giving begrudgingly because someone's twisting our arm. And I, I remember a, uh, a time I sat down with my grandma. Uh, she's, she's passed away uh, several years back. But before she passed away, she, I, I went down to her house and we were, we were sitting at her kitchen table. And she was telling me that uh, she had been given a letter by her church which, had, which told her, here's how much money you have to give us this year. And it had gone up from the year before. And she was really frustrated about that. Because she's like, I'm on a fixed income. My grandpa had died long before this. She was just, she had what she had. And her church was like, you have to give us more. And she was like, I don't want to give them more because <laughs> I need the money to live. And it's like, yeah, grandma, you, they should be giving you money. You shouldn't be giving them, like, what is happening here? And I told her, this is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches to be a cheerful giver because God loves that. And it teaches that you should decide in your own heart what you should give. No one should dictate to you what to give. And uh, she just kind of, you know, she was a lifelong Roman Catholic and God lover and all that. But she just kind of shrugged and was like, well, what can you do? You know, I was like, you could, well, there's a lot of things you could do. But okay, uh, you're, 80, you're 80 something years old. I get it. You're not going to change at this point. That's fine. But she was very frustrated by this. And, and I just tried to encourage her with, with the gospel in that. But... Anyway, so, so that's the point. Like, the Bible teaches that the church shouldn't be compulsory towards people. We shouldn't be billing people. Like, how ridiculous is that? Uh, it happens, I know, which is crazy. But, but people should determine in our own hearts without reluctancy and without compulsion, we should be cheerful givers. All right, one last point to make before we get back to Acts. Um, 
Look at the next verses, 9 through 11 of chapter 9. It says, As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The, the last thing that Paul does, at least in, in terms of what we're looking at, is he, he gets really pastoral for a moment here, which is he's not just coming at them with theology. It's like he gets down to the practical level too and says, listen, I know that what's really underlying most of us being um, lack, of, lack of givers is that we're afraid. And what we're afraid of is we're afraid of not having enough. And so what Paul does is he quotes Psalm 112, verse 9, which says, He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. And then he applies that by saying that the one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He's telling the Corinthians, God is going to provide for you so we don't need to fear generosity. Now, we can be wise in generosity, right? We, we understand like that people are at different levels and that's, that's all true. But there is a reality that God does supply for us what we need to both live as, as many years as he wants us to live and to supply the needs of others in whatever way we can, right? Philippians 4.19 says that as well, that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And in the context of that passage, we see Paul talking to the Philippians and saying, you guys supplied for me, you helped me, and God's going to supply for you as well, right? So God uses people to help meet the needs. Sure, God could just drop manna from heaven for us like he did for the Israelites, But what he does most of the time for us is he calls us and he puts upon our hearts the desire to be generous givers. And so we're seeing that fleshed out in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, and really throughout the whole book we see this thread of people caring for one another, loving them, helping them, providing for their needs, and we're given an example of that in Barnabas in particular. But now we need to pivot back because we've got chapter 5 to start looking at today. We're not going to finish 5 today. We're going to get to verse 11 and we'll finish up chapter 5 next Sunday. But um, while we've seen so far the call of the church or the response of the church to be generous people and share what they have, we're also going to be given an immediate pivot to an, an, a bad example of how this can go horribly wrong. Not everything in the local church is good. And some things in every church are bad. It was true in the, in the first church, it's true now. As much as there's good happening, there's also hard things happening. And we see that, uh, we see a very clear example of that in chapter 5. So let's look at 5 verse 1. Um, we've just seen literally what happens just before this is Barnabas sells a field that belongs to him and he brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. All of that leads directly into chapter five, which says, but 
a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so you can see the clear contrast that's happening here. There's Barnabas who sells a piece of property, takes the money, gives it all to the church. Now you have this guy Ananias and his wife Sapphira who do the same thing, sells a piece of property. But there's a key difference here, and that is that together they decide to keep back for themselves some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, so much of this is going to become clear as we, the problem here is going to become clear as we get into verse 3 through uh, 6. So look, look at these with me. It says, but Peter, so the apostle Peter here said, said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Okay, so the problem is lying. The problem is lying. That's the issue here. The issue, as we're going to see in just a second, is not that they only gave some of their sale. That's not the problem. That's so often how we read this story. It's like, well, if Ananias had just given all of it, then, then he wouldn't have had this happen to him, which we're going to see what happens if you're not familiar. Uh, doesn't go well. But um, he, he is, that's not the issue. The issue is that he lies and holds back. Now look at how Peter fleshes this out in the next question. He asks a series of questions. Verse four, while it, the land, remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So, so again, you're seeing the point here, right? It's generosity is not really the problem here. It's not, a, it's not that uh, Ananias is being chastised for being cheap, it, it's that he's being chastised for lying, deceiving, manipulating the situation to make himself look better than he is. Peter says, when you didn't sell the land, wasn't it your land? Wasn't it yours? Like the church doesn't own the land. There's personal property here. Right? We talked about this a few weeks back where they have all these things in common, but that's not a form of communism in that, Everything is owned by some state or some, uh, some institution. The Christians are not obligated to give what they have away to the church. It's not an obligation. It's not owned by the church. This guy owned his own land. And, Paul, and Peter says, excuse me, says, when you didn't sell it, before you sold it, wasn't it your own land? And then after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? Meaning, could you not have done whatever you wanted with this money, Ananias? No one had a gun to your head to give us this money. No one was putting a pre- no one was putting you under compulsion to do this. When you sold the land, you could have done anything you wanted with that money. It was at your disposal. So Ananias could have said, "You know what? We sold a piece of land and we are going to give you X amount from it 
and we're going to keep the rest because it's it's our land. We sold it. We we want to buy a, a four-wheeler or something with it, right? Whatever. Like, that was fine. They could have done that. Nobody would have been angry about that. They could have said, you know what? We sold a piece of land and we're going to keep it all because we want to do something else with this money. Fine. Nobody would have been mad about that. The problem is, is that they're trying to keep up with Barnabas in appearance, but not in practice. You see that? They're, they're going, Barnabas sold this land. We got to keep up with him because if we don't keep up with him, we're going to look like schmoes. That's what they're worried about. They're, they're concerned about their appearance. This is not an issue of generosity. This is an issue of hypocrisy. They are pretending to be more spiritual than they really are. That's what hypocrisy is. It is pretending to be something you're not. The word hypocrisy comes from the word for actor in the ancient Greek language. And so not saying that actors are bad. It's just saying that when you are acting like something you're not in real life, in actual life, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. And that's what the Bible speaks against so much is the hypocrisy of false spirituality, of false belief in, in, in the gospel and a false lifestyle. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira rather, are guilty of. And Peter's going, why did you do this? You haven't lied to man, you lied to God. When Ananias, verse 5, heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Okay, that's crazy. Um, and the great fear came upon all who heard of it. Yeah, I'd say so. And, and the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Uh, I kind of I laugh a little bit at that verse because I, these young men have to deal with this situation. Uh, Ananias dies. He's, he's God judges him and takes him out. Now, that's a hard thing to wrap our heads around because um, why? Well, this seems like a really small thing to kill somebody over, right? He just told a little white lie, right? I mean, we all, we all should be dead. That's the case, right? We've all lied. Um, but thankfully, God doesn't do this, but he's making, he doesn't do this to all of us, at least. He's, he's making an example, though, of the situation. He's trying to keep the church pure by dealing with this in, in a really severe way. So understand he doesn't operate that way in, in all times, thankfully, by God's grace. Um, but in this situation, he takes Ananias out and he, he has him fall down dead. And then these young men have to get up, they wrap him up and they go and bury him. And I just think about this and go, these two guys, these young guys are like, mom, dad, I just got an internship with the apostle Peter. Oh, that's awesome. What did they got to have you do? Probably bury dead bodies mostly. I don't know. I mean, that just seems like a really tough job. But okay, these, these interns, I'm going to call them the interns from here on out. The interns go and bury, uh, bury the bodies, which is what you always have interns do, really. Like, let's be honest. It's what interns do. You get them to do the stuff you don't want to do. Um, all right, so let's keep reading. We got a few more verses to look at. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. So Sapphira's back home, probably going, it's been three hours. Where is Ananias? Uh, he should have been home by now. He was just dumping off our half-hearted half-gift and should have been home by now. So she goes and looks for him. She goes to Peter and it says, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. 
This is, this is actually like, let's not lose sight of it. This is an act of graciousness on his part. He's giving her an opportunity to be honest. Did you sell the land for this much? And she says, yes, for so much. So Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they went, oh man, come on, again? No. Uh, <laughs> they, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Yeah, I would say so, right? All right, so Ananias and Sapphira, they, they collude together. They make a plan to deceive the church, to deceive the Lord, try to deceive the Lord, and they both are judged for it. So here's, here's where we got to pivot to, though, because the problem here is hypocrisy. The problem is that they are lying as a way to create a pretense that they are more spiritual than they are, that they are like Barnabas. And they're probably, Ananias is probably thinking Barnabas is the golden boy. His name's not even Barnabas. They just give him this nickname because they love him so much. And maybe there's some jealousy there. I mean, we're just speculating, right? Because the text doesn't tell us. But I can imagine, because I know human nature, we all know human nature. We all know ourselves and go, man, this guy's the golden boy and I, we just got to keep up with him. He gave, a, he gave the church all this money from his sale of the, the land and what are we going to do? We, we, don't, we, we don't actually want to give the whole money away, so let's just pretend to do that. So what's the solution here though? What is the real issue here? Like I said, it's not about generosity or a lack of generosity. At the end of the day, it's about hypocrisy. And the answer to hypocrisy is actually found in Ananias' name. Ananias means the Lord gives grace. The Lord gives grace. And if he had leaned into that, he would have, he would have been okay. If he had just been honest and, and gone God has grace for this and I can be honest about this and I'm going to walk in the light that this would have all been different. He could have said to Peter in that moment, you know what? I did lie. I didn't sell the land for this much money. I sold it for this much. And I'm going to give either give it all or that he promised or he can say, listen, I just can't. Would you forgive me? And there would have been grace in this, absolutely. And so the answer to Ananias and Sapphira's problem is grace. The answer to our hypocrisy, yours and mine, is the same. It is the grace of God through honest confession, through honest living, through, through being a person who walks in the light. It, it comes down, ultimately, all of this comes down to what John writes in 1 John 1 verse 7, which says, let me get there real quick here. He says, walk in the light. Um, sorry, one more page here. He says, uh, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another 
and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's think about this verse for a few minutes because the first thing it says is that we walk in the light. It doesn't say we run. We do this one step at a time. We can all do this. We can all walk gradually, increasingly, more and more into the light. But what does it mean to walk in the light as he is in the light? And uh, to go there, I'm going to use a definition that Ray Ortland, a pastor uh, an author uses, and I think it's helpful. He says, to walk in the light is opening up to an honest relationship with Jesus and with one another so that we're free to grow. We can stop making excuses. But Lord, this is my personality. But Lord, look what my wife did. But Lord, you can't expect me to actually obey the Bible. That's not walking in the light. It's hanging back in the shadows of evasion and denial. It's unfair to him and it's injurious to us. So what happens as we walk in the light in this open, honest relationship with both Jesus and one another? What happens? The text tells us that we will have fellowship with one another and fellowship is different than casual relationships. Fellowship is meaningful relationship being known, actually being known by people. And we will have that if we walk in the light. If you don't walk in the light and and you always keep people at arm's distance, you're never going to have fellowship. Now, you don't have to be like wearing your heart on your sleeve with every single human being on the earth, but you need trusted friends in your life. You need people that you can lean into and be honest with. So we can have fellowship with one another. But the second thing that happens is that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As we walk in the light, meaning that we walk in honesty with Jesus and others, we have the fellowship we long for and we have the forgiveness we desperately need. So I'm going to read just another paragraph or so from Ray Ortland, and then I'll pray and we'll end it with this. Here's how he explains this. He says, There is no sin that his blood cannot cleanse away. The text says all sin. So think of your worst. It's hard, I know, but think of the sin that you most regret. The sin in your past that haunts and troubles you to this day. That is the point in your existence where Jesus loves you the most tenderly. That is the sin Jesus bled to cleanse away from you. So take a step into the light, then another, then another. Confess your sins to the Lord and to a trusted friend who will pray for you. Don't avoid it anymore. Face it, admit it, speak it. Begin a new lifestyle of honest confession. Don't hold back, and Jesus won't hold back either. Let me pray. Father, we we thank you uh, for your grace that you have given us through Jesus. And we pray uh, that as each of us look in our own lives and our own um, insecurities and our own sins and all the things that we carry in, in our 
in our flesh, in our, in our human nature. I pray you'd help us, uh, that you would help us to walk in the light, to see that the answer to our struggles is not hiding, but it's honesty. And God, I, help, I pray that you would do that in me. I pray that you do that in each of us in this room. I pray, God, now as we look at your, uh, your table, as we remind ourselves of your sacrifice on the cross, would you help us to walk to that table today as believers and as people who have been honest about ourselves this week? And would you give us uh, the grace to humbly confess to you what is in our hearts that you already know. We're not telling you anything you don't already know, but would you help us to be honest with you as we celebrate what you've done for us in your body and your blood. I pray, God, for the remainder of our time together that we would sing with joy to you, that we would uh, be drawn into to you through this time, and that we would uh, be generous people with our tithes and offerings as well as you lead us to that. Uh, We pray that you would get the glory and the honor, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.